Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Dr. Santos, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. Now that we're back from space with our, our last episode and our new show, yeah. I, I'm glad that we had a chance to uh, relax for just a week before getting back into the grind. It was, it was a very nice time. And thank you so much again, Eleanor and company, for that beautiful new show. We went as far as the cosmos last week, you know, high, high up into the sky. <laughs> We're starting in already That's, with the uh, with the puns and the irreverence. <laughs> it's another one of my famous segues that comes from nowhere. And as with all of them, they will eventually catch on fire. It's funny that you mentioned being on fire, because isn't half of California burning? <laughs> or are you at a weenie roast right now? No, no. I we, We're okay so far. I'm just south enough and just east enough that I'm not burning with the rest of this beautiful state. Thanks to all the firefighters out there for saving us. We would be ash without you. Oh, and the last thing you want is a piece of ash, Santosh. Your wife would be furious. Oh, so mad. I committed to one ash for the rest of my life. Well, one of the interesting things that makes this week's topic a little bit more topical is that there is a big difference between state and federal opinions on, surprise, medical marijuana. Whereas most of California seems very enthusiastic about legalizing it, and our Attorney General Elf on a Shelf is, seems a little more opposed. So I figured <laughs> it'd be perfect to pull up an actual expert, somebody who knows what they're talking about, and can give us a little bit more information. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to announce uh, to this podcast Dr. Rachna Patel. She has been practicing the realm of medical marijuana for about half a decade. She started in 2012. 
and uh, she's a physician, EO, who is fully board certified, and she takes the terrible and the time to walk her patients step by step how to use medical marijuana for their specific medical condition without necessarily experiencing a high, without any addiction or habit forming, and without smoking. And uh, she's coming up, you know, coming on this podcast today to speak from her experience after having treated thousands of patients, thoroughly reviewing the available medical literature. Your studies, Dr. Patel, were at uh, Toro University College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is in Vallejo. And before that, you were out at Northwestern, right by where Dr. Josh is in the beautiful city of Chicago. Woohoo, so, Chicago! <laughs> so, Dr. Patel, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Let's clear up right before we get into the main meat of the episode. Dr. Patel, you are a, when we say a medical marijuana doctor, you're somebody who really looks at all the aspects of its treatment. Can you briefly give us what's the difference between medical and recreational marijuana or phrased in a slightly <laughs> less polite way? What makes you different than, say, the long string of folks up and down Venice Beach who uh, yeah. can find multiple reasons to to prescribe? Yes, a great question. Basically, what I'm doing is I'm taking the time to, to, to walk patients through how to safely use medical marijuana. Now, the industry, you know, what you're referring to has a reputation, right? The, the way, way it sort of exists is that you have clinics that have popped up and you have doctors that are sort of without doing a thorough evaluation or sort of handing out cards like candy. And I was actually in this position when I started off. So, so basically, when I decided to work in the area of medical marijuana, I wanted to gain clinical experience. So I started off working at one of these clinics and about like a weekend, I was like, all right, I can't keep on doing this. This is ridiculous. One, there was like no integrity in it. And second, what I was finding was that I was in Sacramento at the time and there were a lot of attorneys that I happened to be seeing and they were really interested in, you know, doc, teach me how to use it so that I'm not getting side effects and so that I'm getting consistent results. Because sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Being a physician, one of the, your main jobs, figure out how to titrate a medication for, for patients. So that's a skill that, that we all have that we're all really good at. And so just having read the research, seeing how it's, it's, it's working, uh, seeing the clinical outcomes in patients. I, I was able to, over the years, figure out, okay, you know, this is how we need to titrate it for this condition. This is how you need to, to this is the best, best method of administration for this condition. So that's really where I'm spending my time with patients is, is walking them through how exactly to use it so that they're not getting side effects. They don't have to smoke it. They're not getting high off of it. The actual treatment without all the fun parts, just like medicine is supposed right. to be. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> So no culture has had such a long and enduring relationship with marijuana as that of, and I know you want to say Southern California, but in fact, it's India. So as the, now, both Santosh, mm -hmm. uh, I tease you a lot about <laughs> yeah, yeah. being brown. And you have mentioned once or twice that there is a marijuana smoothie yeah. <laughs> uh, that is made for cultural significance. I, I actually don't know if it's marijuana uh -huh. or if it's a different hallucinogenic thing because uh, when uh, I really haven't tried this, but when I've been told about it, um, the people who drank it, I, I've heard it referred to as bhang, B H A N G. And if th those who've experienced that 
seem to have some hallucination that come along with like the rest of the high, which is not terribly typical of cannabinoids. But <laughs> if it is indeed a, a, a cannabis or a species of cannabis, then yeah, it would have been used uh, historically for like centuries. For those of our listeners at home, it's a hemp or cannabis drink usually mixed with milk. Whether or not it actually can, people have believed it can quicken the mind, improve judgment, lower fevers, induce sleep. And really, this goes as far back as the Ayurvedas, which is the traditional Indian medicine. And that's as far back as 600 BC. So it's first mentioned in the fourth book of the Vedas, known as oh, oh, I'm going to mess this up. Athar, Atharva Veda, which means the science of charms, and it's one of the five kingdoms of herbs which release us from anxiety. So, Doctor Patel, what are the actual effects of marijuana that people should? You know, what are the medical effects that we're looking so, for? When used within a therapeutic dosing range, the conditions that it helps the most are chronic pain, anxiety, and insomnia. That's what I've seen it help the most. In addition, I've also treated patients that are experiencing nausea, lack of appetite, vomiting from, from undergoing chemotherapy, history of multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's. So a variety of different conditions, but those are the three general main categories that, that I see most often. From a standpoint then kind of going all the way back from history to kind of modern times, um, I know you've also... Uh, spoken a little bit and definitely read the literature on what the active components are that actually cause those effects and where they bind to in the brain and the rest of the body. So um, I think when we talk about cannabis, we have two main components, right? THC and CBD. Is that correct? Correct. And then the, the main receptors in what's called the endocannabinoid system in our body are CB1 and CB2. And they're located in different concentrations in different areas in the body, right? Um, mainly what they interact with is THC. Now, interesting thing about CBD is that it doesn't interact directly with the receptors. It oh. actually hinders the breakdown of, of anandamide, which is what we we produce in our own bodies that's similar in structure to THC in the marijuana plant, and it, and it hinders a breakdown of it by inhibiting fatty acid amino hydrolase. That's what breaks down THC in our bodies, and that's what that does. You're saying, and this is something that we found from the literature, mm -hmm. we actually make some of our own chemicals that bind these receptors and can potentially give us these effects if they're in the right concentration. Yep, exactly. But in our bodies, not our backyard. <laughs> exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. I want to make that again. <laughs> Very clear. Okay. Just for those who don't know, um, I'm going to get it straight from the expert. Um, THC is the acronym for what's the what's the full name? So it's it's tetrahydrocannabinol. And CBD? CBD is cannabidiol. Now you know. Dr. Patel, it seems like you had kind of an interesting path to become a medical marijuana doctor. I'm going to guess you didn't originally go to med school and say, I would love to become a professional urban pharmacist. Interesting story. It starts with Craigslist. <laughs> Doesn't it always? <laughs> always a good story. You don't not start with Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> I was in residency. I, so my background's in emergency medicine, right? 
And I was sort of an unhappy camper in residency um, because, you know, I was sort of this naive person that like started off like, you know, I want to save the world. I want to save lives. And instead, what I found myself doing was handing out prescriptions on the one hand. And on the other hand, I was treating patients that were on these very same prescription medications and they were coming in complaining of side effects. Uh, uh, they were coming in addicted to these medications. Um, and, and, you know, what ER doctors like to very fondly call drug seekers. The worst case scenario was, was that I was in the unfortunate position of having to resuscitate patients that overdosed on these medications. So big picture step back. It's like, all right, I'm not really solving any problems here. In fact, I feel like I'm creating problems. So I was working so much during residency that I started to experience tons of insomnia. And so I found myself just surfing the internet a lot. And I was on Craigslist. What was I doing on Craigslist? I never gave up my dumpster diving ways from back in college. So I was looking for free stuff. <laughs> so that's when I hit the health and medical button, just out of curiosity. And that's when I saw an ad that said medical marijuana doctor needed. And up until that point, I had no idea that this whole whole like realm even existed. So I started looking into it. I spent a good year doing research whenever I had the opportunity. And, and by the end of the year, I was like, you know what? There's a lot of potential for medical marijuana to treat chronic pain that, that conventional medicines are, you know, where conventional medicines just aren't cutting it for chronic pain, right? So typically what do we do? We, we prescribe opioids. If those don't work, then we go to antidepressants. If those don't work, then we go to anti-seizure medications. And a lot of times patients end up with tons of side effects. They become, they're pretty much resistant to, to conventional medications, even conditions like fibromyalgia, for instance, right? That's the, the one that comes to, to top of mind. After a year, I was like, okay, I need to gain clinical experience. The research is saying one thing, but I want to see how it actually plays out clinically. And so that's when I signed up to work at a medical marijuana clinic out in Sacramento. Within like a week or two, I was like, all right, I'm not, I'm not just going to sit here and, and, and hand out cards. I want to actually like make something of this, of this because there's a lot of potential here. So a year and a half later, I gained enough capital to start my own practice. You know, I've been in practice now since uh, 2014. Now, how did your practice change over the years? Because I'm, I'm going to go out mm -hmm. on a limb and guess that when you first opened your own practice, the kinds of patients who were coming in were expecting you again to be a little bit more like uh, the hand out a card and be on their way. And it sounds like maybe they were in for a little bit of a surprise as you say, no, let's, let's work through what this can actually try. Yeah. Like what's with all the <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, is that what's interesting is that I had a really hard time opening up a clinic in the area that I opened up in. Um, I opened up in an area where the population on average is, it tends to be uh, generally between the ages of 40 all the way up through 90. There's a retirement community close to where I'm located. It's a fairly conservative community. So it attracts a certain demographic just by sheer location. It, it's, it's almost sort of self-selective in terms of who comes to me. That I make really clear. And now, have I have there been patients, you know, like 18-year-olds that come in the day after their birthday, all of a sudden, you know, having anxiety uh, that have come to my clinic? Yeah, yeah, quote, yeah. Unquote, most sure. definitely, you know, <laughs> and... And have I issued a card? No. And hopefully they've kind of spread the word, you know, th with their high school classmates that, hey, this doc is not the doc to go to if you just want a card handed out to you. Uh, and also through word of mouth, you know, that, hey, you know, this doctor takes her work seriously sort of thing. So that was very intentional. Marijuana has been claimed to deal with a whole bunch of things. And, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity that you you unknowingly opened up for me to dive back into the Victorian era and stop groaning, Santosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, did we warn Dr. Patel that 
you know, Josh loves him some puns and some yeah. history. And if you give him any tiny little window, he will pontificate on the ancient past or the Victorian era. Yeah. Marijuana was actually pretty commonly used for a variety of ailments, including muscle spasms, menstrual cramps, the convulsions of tetanus, rabies, because sure, why not? Uh, one of the interesting things I found is that it was used to promote uterine contractions in childbirth, as well as a sedative to induce sleep. And it's said to have been used by Queen Victoria herself against menstrual cramps, for which there is no actual proof, but her personal physician, Robert Russell, wrote extensively on cannabis, recommending it for use in a lot of different things. So it doesn't seem unreasonable to think that Queen Victoria might have, on occasion, uh, puff puffed, and she's not going to pass because she's royalty. And in fact, she, she took it in the form of a tincture, which is a little bit of I guess, THC mixed with alcohol rather than purely smoking. You mentioned that one of the things when you work with your patients is you're trying to work with them to teach them to use medical marijuana without smoking. How do you do that? Yeah, so there's a wide variety of methods of administration, right? So other than smoking, an alternative to, to, to smoking, a form of inhalation is known as vaporization. So essentially what that is is that you're you're taking the plant and heating it rather than burning it preventing a combustion reaction and preventing the formation of hydrocarbons, which can be damaging to the lung tissue. Um, so that's one way, right? Now, second way, you have edibles. It goes way beyond the prototypical pop brownie nowadays. You'll mainly find a lot of chocolates and gummies, but it's evolving to the point where you can find gluten-free options, vegan options, sugar-free options. Um, sort of Did you just say there's gluten-free marijuana? Yep, gluten-free marijuana. <laughs> oh, what a world. What a world we live in. What a world. And don't let anyone tell you things aren't getting better. And then, like you mentioned, there's a sublingual formulation of marijuana, commonly known as tinctures. That's also available. Believe it or not, so there's also topical formulations of marijuana and uh, vaginal and rectal formulations of now, marijuana as well. marijuana in this form... And I'm, I'm glad we talked about THC and CBD before. Are these purified compounds yeah. or are they kind of essential oils taken from the entirety of the plant such that there's a variety of molecules or synthesized or how, what, what's actually in there? Yeah, so it's a great question. So it's not a purified molecule. Basically, every plant makes varying combinations of CBD and THC, right? Depending on its plant genetics and the environment in which it was grown. So basically, these chemicals are then extracted in either, it has to be some sort of hydro, uh, hydrocarbon. So like a, like an organic alcohol, it has to be extracted in or an oil. The, the compounds in marijuana are fat soluble. So it's extracted in that. And then that is then mixed in with, you know, with the edibles or it's formulated into a tincture or it's made into a suppository. So that's essentially the, the basic manufacturing process. As as far back as That's 1889, awesome. okay. there was actually an article in The Lancet itself, an article by a Dr. E.A. Birch, who recommend and even outlined the use of cannabis for opium withdrawal. So cannabis was looked at as a solution to the opioid crisis in Victorian times. Uh, how practical <laughs> would it be to 
try and continue that trend today? So I have seen some pretty amazing results, results that I did not expect to see. Now, I figured going into this that, you know what, marijuana will probably be one tool in the arsenal of tools that patients have to treat pain. But instead, clinically, here's what I found. So a couple different scenarios. Best case scenario, patients were able to to completely eliminate the use of medical of um, opioids, right? When they used it with uh, the medical marijuana, I have patients that are able to significantly reduce the the doses of the opioid medications that they're taking. And in the worst case scenario, I do have patients that continue to take the same doses of the opioids, but they're getting better pain relief clinically. So I, I'm not surprised that in the past that it was used for for even opioid withdrawal. So how exactly does marijuana relieve pain? And are there side effects that people taking any formulation of medical marijuana should expect? You know, other than presumably the munchies, because I've seen the same movies as everyone else. And I know that you get psychedelic, uh, talking Scooby-Doo dogs. How does, how does medical <laughs> marijuana actually work? Let's actually yeah, d- so- dispel some stereotypes here. So a couple different ways that it's that it's helping pain, right? So one is is that it 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 modulates pain along the pain pathways, the signaling of it. Now in animal models, what they found is that any animal that's in pain, they tend to, to form greater receptors for cannabinoids. And and then what happens is that the interaction between the cannabinoids and these cannabinoid receptors happens to somehow dampen the signal that's going up to the brain that, hey, I'm having pain. That's one way. Second way is that it somehow sort of interferes with the emotional processing of pain. So you have physical processing of pain and you have emotional processing of pain, and it sort of disrupts that connection. So a lot of times clinically I have patients tell me, hey, doc, you know, it didn't really take the pain away, but it bothers, it doesn't bother me as much. So that's something that I, I commonly hear a lot. And then the third thing is, is that it helps to reduce inflammation. Basically, it, it modulates the immune system. Um, it works at the level of cytokines in, in suppressing cytokines. And for those who don't know what cytokines are, they, they help to start and stop inflammation, essentially. It helps to cause cell death of, of cells that are specifically causing an autoimmune reaction. And then finally, it activates T regulatory cells, right? So these are cells that we have in place to sort of keep our body in check to prevent an, an, you know, an autoimmune attack. So those are the main ways, as far as we know, based on animal uh, research done basically in mice and rats. And for those who are interested or have any kind of background, um, for anybody who's interested, it, would it be okay to elevate this one step, uh, Dr. Patel, and talk about what precisely the chemicals are involved. So which one would be for pain, what chemical and what receptor? So here's what I found. You know, clinically what I've seen is that it's it depends on the medical condition, okay? So in some cases, high levels of CBD are effective. In some cases, you need equal amounts, right? So in general, what, I, what I've what i noticed is that in autoimmune conditions, you do need about equal amounts of CBD and THC. Whereas, for instance, in conditions where muscle spasms are an issue, I found that CBD is a lot more, high levels of CBD are a lot more efficacious. What's nice is that in states where marijuana has been legalized for recreational use, the states mandate laboratory testing. And this laboratory testing is liquid or gas chromatography to figure out the amounts of the, of the, the CBD and the THC plus other chemicals. 
And so this way, patients can know exactly what combination they're putting into their bodies. Oh, beautiful. So we're creating a little bit of almost like a, an open platform that we can start to gather this data. Now, when you say there's THC and CBD, does that equate to, I, I've heard there's two main kinds of marijuana, which is a sativa and an, and an indica. Do they have different components or is that a completely separate sort of thing? The term sativa and indica are more agriculturally relevant. It does help to distinguish plants, but medically you need to get far more specific than just sativa and indica because plants have been bred, you know, to, to create varying amounts of CBD and THC. So medically, I would say sativa and indica are not relevant. Really what's more important are the laboratory test results. So once you're taking an established medical form of marijuana, what are the expected effects or, you know, what are you looking for? And then what are the side effects? And I realize it sounds like you can treat a whole wide range of things. So that's that's a very broad question. But in general, what what can sort of things should people expect? And what can they say might come yeah. up as an yeah. unintended consequence? Yeah. So, so as long as you're taking a, a therapeutic dose, uh, and I'll go into what that means in a second, a therapeutic dose of marijuana, then you should expect it to, to help reduce pain Sometimes it can eliminate it, not always. It can it can help to reduce anxiety and it can help insomniac. So like I said, mentioned before, those are the three most common conditions that I treat. And then there's also conditions like, for instance, nausea helps to reduce nausea, frequency of vomiting helps to stimulate appetite. Now, side effects, side effects are all dose dependent, right? So if you take too much, too much would be a toxic dose. So with every medication, for those that don't know, there's a subtherapeutic range, there's a therapeutic range, and there's a toxic range, right? Therapeutic is your sweet spot. That's where you're getting medical benefits, but you're not getting side effects. Toxic dosing range, that's what typically most people use back in college and high school. That's when you're getting side effects. Side effects such as paranoia, anxiety, dizziness, increase in heart rate. And if you really overdo it, nausea and vomiting and auditory and visual hallucinations. But you really have to overdo it to get to that point. Yeah. In fact, there's a medical condition that we do run across every now and again over here in internal medicine known as a cannabinoid hyperemesis yep. syndrome, which is a fancy way of saying nonstop vomiting secondary to marijuana use. And clinically, what I found from my end is that typically that happens in patients that are overusing. From at least my understanding, and certainly from the pro-marijuana community, is that the amount it would take to cause an overdose, like we think of with a cocaine mm -hmm. or a heroin or that, the amount that it would take to cause an overdose simply doesn't really exist. It's not something you can die from in a single dose, although, as you mentioned, the hydrocarbons, the burning ash, <clears throat> some of the other problems associated with smoking, of course, would still apply. Yeah. So lethal dosing is close to impossible from a practical standpoint. And in fact, there was a statement made by the DEAs. They had an administrative judge who made this statement. And basically, he said, you'd have to consume 1,500 pounds in 15 minutes to cause a lethal lethal nice. overdose, right? <laughs> so that's like that's you you die from like gastric rupture before before you die from the overdose on the marijuana. So um, so it's it's practically impossible, but but you don't want to overdo it. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't feel good to 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 be you know in fetal position on the floor. So who's the ideal medical marijuana candidate? 
uh, to you? Who who really should be coming in and maybe is not taking advantage of its benefit? The patients that commonly come into me are those that have spun their wheels with conventional medicine when it comes to pain management, when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to, to insomnia, um, and they're just not getting the relief that they want. I also get patients that are like, look, I don't want to get on prescription medications because a lot of the prescription medications like antidepressants, anxiolytics, you kind of have to stay on once you get on them. And then there's a weaning process to go through to, to come off of them. And that's what they sort of they don't want to get themselves into that that area. I'll tell you, there's a couple groups of patients that that I'm cautious in recommending medical marijuana to. You've got patients with lung conditions. Obviously, they should not be inhaling marijuana in any way, shape, or form because it can exacerbate their underlying lung condition. You've got patients with heart conditions. Okay, so excess amounts of marijuana can cause can increase heart rate, and that can then exacerbate the underlying heart condition. Patients with previous episodes, uh, previous like, history of psychotic episodes, right? Because excess amounts can cause visual and auditory hallucinations, it puts them at greater risk of experiencing psychotic episodes. So that's another group of patients. Then you have women that are planning on becoming pregnant, that, that are pregnant or that are breastfeeding. This population, I recommend that they not use medical marijuana because the jury's sort of out when it comes to the research on the effect that marijuana has on a growing fetus and on a growing baby. <laughs> so I, I tend to practice more conservatively, recommend that they, that they not use. And then children, you want to use it with great caution. There have been cases in Colorado of accidental overdoses where kids have been brought to the emergency room in a comatose state. So, and it certainly can be used, like I use it quite a bit in children who have like ep epilepsy, but the dosing is very, very um, tightly titrated. I'm just picturing a pediatric joint, what that would look like. And I'm like, okay, little Timmy. Oh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right? That'd be like an adorable little pipe. The little smoking baby from uh, Who Frank Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah, of course, on. Baby Herman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I have actually seen, um, you know, and this is all anecdotal, but a child with epilepsy, and um, <laughs> Dr. Patel, maybe you've seen this as well, but on YouTube where a child is actively seizing. He's in a generalized tonic-clonic seizure and the parent or the caretaker administers, I believe, a cannabinoid oil sublingually um, or buccally by the cheek using a wand or a swab. And the child kind of right in front of you as if you stirred, you know, like you're in the ER bay and you're giving the anti-epileptic right then and there. You see the seizure slow and then stop, and then the child kind of come out of the, the post-epil period. So th this is a disclaimer. It, it's not going to happen every single time. But this is yeah. something which I, I'm sure people who are administering medical marijuana, such as yourself, have seen. But unfortunately, we don't have like the large numbers, nor the ability to research to actually show that this would work, say, versus placebo. And then what it would take to get marijuana into the research arena properly and to control human trials, et cetera. Let me just comment yeah. on, on what you said really quickly. So first of all, my general rule of thumb is I don't usually believe a lot of what I see on YouTube, yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially when it comes to, comes to medical marijuana. A lot of it can be, you know, it could be the magic of, of movies, yeah, right. photography going on. So here's the thing. I mean, practically speaking, buckle and sublingual administration of marijuana sure, sure. takes you know, up to 20 minutes at least to take effect. So, so for it to be that quick, I would, I would find hard to believe there might be some editing going on and whatnot. Now, clinically, when it comes to epilepsy, have I seen it be 
be efficacious? Yes, most definitely. I, clinically, what I've seen is that it's it's helped to reduce the frequency of seizures as well as the duration of seizures. Has it ever helped to eliminate seizures? No, I haven't seen that to be the case clinically. Right. You haven't seen a broken seizure. So we might have either seen a child who incidentally was kind of on the tail end of a seizure anyway, as in it would have, you know, the episode would have ended with or without the administration of whatever was going into his mouth at that point, or it was kind of a very happy coincidence. That's as far as we know, because we, just like you said, we have kind of um, word of mouth and anecdotes and we don't have the trials there. So, Dr. Patel, when when we're talking about the research available and all the different studies, there's not a lot that we can really look at too much because marijuana is a Schedule One drug. So it's believed by the federal government to have no medical benefits whatsoever. And and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But could you comment, like, where are you finding these studies? Where is this coming from? And then uh, I'll give you a quick trivia question and and see if I can test your knowledge. Most of the research that that I've been reviewing has been in PubMed. Like I said, a lot of it is based in animal studies. There are studies that are done in humans, some of which are double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. The thing that's lacking in these studies is that the patient population that, that they use is small. It's a lot less than like, you know, typically what you'd want, like 250 to 200, 200 participants. And there's a catch-22, right? Because it's a class one substance. We can't really do much, much much research on it, but supposedly, you know, they found it to be um, highly addictive and and to not have much medical value. A lot of that, honestly, if you look at the history of marijuana in America, is it's not due to to they didn't come to that conclusion based on research. They came to that that decision due to to the political oh, yeah. economic climate back in 1937 in America, and then you fast forward to to the Nixon era, where they just happened to classify it as a class one substance. And then then Reagan came in into the presidency, and he, you know, started this whole war on drugs. I don't know how old you guys are, but I went through D.A.R.E., you know, I think it's... Yeah, sure, sure. Just say no. That's your... Yeah, education. Sure, D.A.R.E. and McGruff. Take a bite out of crime. Right, exactly. Which, the best part is, the voice of McGruff was later convicted of drug possession. So there's a fun little follow-up for you. So let's talk a little bit about what it actually means to have a Schedule One substance. It's not like, you know, we're taking a test or there's a specific time that you have to use these drugs. Back in 1970, Congress passed something known as the Controlled Substances Act. And there's a long history of things that led up to this, which really makes for some interesting reading and or viewing. That includes the Henry J. Anslinger, who was... Uh, an individual with very specific views, not to mention the release of the film Reefer Madness, which, as I said earlier, uh, just a single joint can cause you to go insane and kill your whole family with an axe, or so the propaganda would like you to believe. So the Controlled Substance Act, as part of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, established a single system of control for both narcotic and psychotropic drugs for the first time in U.S. history, and it created five different categories that they called schedules to classify substances, with one being the most restricted and five being the most open. So schedule one, drugs are classified as having a high potential for abuse, 
no currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States, and a lack of accepted safety for use of the drug or other substances under medical supervision. We should say, Josh, these aren't universally accepted definitions that fall under these schedules. Um, for instance, if you go to Europe, if you go to other countries, there won't be, you know, complete universal agreement on where these various drugs fit in terms of their classification. Right. Now, the thing about Schedule One substances that makes it so problematic is that no prescriptions may be written for any Schedule One substance, and these substances are subject to production quotas, which the DEA imposes. And we're talking about high potential for abuse, like heroin, for example. So when it comes to a drug that's listed in Schedule 1, if it is undisputed that such drug has no currently accepted medical use and treatment in the U.S. and a lack of accepted safety, and at least has some potential for abuse, then it must remain in Schedule 1. And that's how they kind of keep the placement there, often through a lot of lobbying. Other than marijuana, what are some Schedule 1 drugs? Well, Heroin itself is, even though heroin is used in some European countries as a pain reliever, not to mention GHB, uh, which is the date rape drug, ecstasy, mescaline, peyote. Most of the things that we would classify as recreational drugs tend to be schedule one. All the fun stuff. I'm kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> now, Schedule 2 substances, where I start getting into where we're allowed to prescribe them and and use them, not use them, use them, but make use of them. Now, these drugs are felt to have a very high potential for abuse, but they do have a currently accepted medical use in treatment in the U.S., often with severe restrictions. Things like fentanyl, uh, barbiturates, uh, a lot of the anesthetic drugs, methamphetamine in forms of treatment used for ADHD, methylphenidate like Ritalin, uh, oxycodone. So a lot of the drugs that tend to require referral or pain management for some very long ongoing chronic conditions. So the big difference here between one and two and the gigantic leap is that schedule two drugs, even though they are quite dangerous and need to be kind of watched over very carefully when they're administered, there is a library of research dedicated to these medications. Whereas with Schedule 1 meds, there is nothing. The literature is extremely thin because even trying to acquire these substances for the purposes of testing can lead to a drug trafficking charge. And that is why it is so difficult to make claims about medical marijuana because the breadth of research is very limited. Now, as the fight for legalization has gained ground. Several states have conducted their own scientific and sometimes unscientific based research and released results that others have been able to build on those studies. And we also have a number of studies coming from Europe where the substance is not quite as tightly regulated. So that's really where the problem with Schedule 1 is, is we would love to study and say definitively this is good or this is bad for you, but it is illegal even to begin to ask some of those questions, at least from a federal standpoint.
Now, Schedule 3 and 4 substances require prescriptions, meaning they have a potential for abuse, but less than Schedule 1 and 2 drugs. They have commonly accepted medical use and treatment, and abuse of the drug or substance may lead to a moderate or low physical dependence or a high psychological dependence in comparison to those higher schedules, which are felt to lead to high physical and psychological dependence. So what kind of things fall under Schedule 3 or 4? Well, under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, they have to be dispensed with a written or oral prescription in conformity with a bunch of legalese that is not important to you, but very important to us. And Drugs in this schedule include things like anabolic steroids, uh, specifically testosterone in many of its forms. That's right. 50% of you guys out there are carrying around an illegal substance. <laughs> in, in spades. <laughs> <laughs> Packing away a lot. Uh, Marinol, the synthetic marijuana used as an appetite stimulant, also is a Schedule 3, mostly because it's used to treat nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy, but has very, very low to no addictive properties. Um, also, a couple different sedatives and barbiturates fall under this. Schedule 4 gets, again, mostly the, the sleeping drugs, Ambien, Lunesta, Sonata, all fall under Schedule 4. And last, Schedule 5 are drugs that have a low potential for abuse, are commonly accepted for medical treatment, and have limited physical or psychological dependence, such as... So cough suppressants, con cough suppressants containing small amounts of codeine or some anticonvulsants like pregabalin, known as Lyrica, or a few other drugs used to treat chronic fatigue or appetite suppressants are all felt to have. So largely that's where the schedule system comes in. And for most of you, this is not going to be important except for the fact of, again, that ability to research and study what effects long and short term any of these things have on the human body. Now, some of this has been studied and done unofficially, whether it's by states or some truly dedicated individuals. Uh, but by and large, until the law changes, we're kind of stuck with what's out there. And that is why having experts such as Dr. Patel comes in so handy, especially when they have reviewed the existing literature. Right. The more that we can do from an evidence-based standpoint, meaning that we use a lot of subjects and we replicate studies over and over and we do a good job challenging our assumptions, um, especially when it comes to how medications uh, treat our bodies, the better our knowledge is going to be and the better that we can use these substances to, to kind of take care of each other. So I think that the lesson here is that, you know, being worried about the use of a substance is a good thing, but Understanding how a substance works and uh, especially trying to find uh, the, the upside um, to any substance, be it a drug or chemical, um, you know, as long as we're working within good ethical guidelines, I, I think that's, that's the best way to go. Um, so that's 
thank you like so much for all this information. But yep. I am going to ask, since I, where should somebody go and get their medical marijuana? Um, and before you answer that, do you know where all the government yeah. marijuana comes from right now? As, as far as I understand, <laughs> there is only a single place where the U.S. grows its its own. Yeah, it's the University of Mississippi. But when it when it comes to potency, it's nothing compared to what's sold at dispensaries. You know, you can get now concentrates that are up to 70 to 90% THC. Um, you know, back in the 60s, there were plants that had like 2.5% THC. So that can make a huge difference, you know, if you're looking at it from a medical standpoint. And I feel like our audience is certainly going to want to at least have a rough idea. Have you yourself ever partaken of marijuana in a medical or recreational sense? And I'm going to assume that even if you say yes, it was done in a fully legal state such as California or those. Uh, so we can avoid that that issue. But have you ever tried it yourself? Of course. Yeah. I wouldn't be a medical marijuana doctor if I didn't experience the benefits of it myself. So, I, and in fact, I'm going to admit, I started using it recreationally back in college, but where I found that it helped me was with anxiety and with insomnia. Um, you know, being a type A person, I, I tend to experience a lot of anxiety. So it helps with that. And uh, I tend to be an insomniac, you know, especially when there's a lot of stress in my life. So, so I, I use it on an as-needed basis. Thank you so much for all of this wonderful information. If our audience has more questions about what medical marijuana can be used for or where it can be found, where can they find Yeah, so the best resource that I have on the internet is my YouTube channel. That's where I answer a lot of commonly asked questions about medical marijuana. I base what I say on research. And also, I, I try to answer questions in the comment section as well. And then there's my website, drrechnapatel.com. So, so both of those resources should, uh, should be of help to your audience. And the last thing I always love to ask all of our, our guests is totally unrelated to your actual practice. Do you have a favorite place in the world that you like to go or a favorite travel story that you can share with us? Um, yeah, Hawaii. And I'm actually moving there in two months just because I want to experience a little bit of the island life. So anywhere when I'm surrounded by the tropics and the beach, I love. And will you be bringing your uh, medical practice to Jamaica? <laughs> yes, because that's where they need it, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Record button. Okay, here we go. So we'll just do three, two, one, and we'll do an outro. And um, then, you know, and we'll say thank you so much for your time. Okay. Um, all right. So three, two, one. So that about wraps it up. Um, we got a beautiful dose of history, some wonderful information about research, medical use, and to a little bit of the art of medicine as well in terms of listening to our patients and doing what we can. All of that and more. Um, and so I want to thank you for having me on the show. Oh, absolutely. And thanks so much for your time. So guys, uh, hit us up on Facebook, uh, travelmedicine.squarespace.com, Twitter, and hey, I'm on Instagram as Toshifro. And please do uh, go find out more from uh, drrachnapatel.com. 
As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) Me help. With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories, thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 